Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And so here we are, together in the Psychedelic Salon at the end of this, the 21st day of December in the year 2012. So, are uh, you where you thought you would be and doing what you thought you'd be doing 10 years ago? I have to admit that uh, 10 years ago, when some friends suggested renting the Chan Ka Hotel near the ruins at Palenque, Mexico, uh, where we'd all first met years earlier, well, uh, that sounded pretty good back then. But has the 2012 meme morphed from a little private inside story into a big Hollywood event, we all kind of just lost interest in it, I guess. The simple fact was that with all of the publicity about 2012 and the Mayans, we figured that the last place we wanted to be for the winter solstice of 2012 was in the middle of a mob of New Agers and hippies who were sure to find their way there as well. However, uh, tonight my wife and I had a much better celebration. We took our two youngest granddaughters to their first drumming circle. And while 50 years from now they probably won't remember anything about the hoopla of 2012, uh, well, they may at least remember their first drumming circle. Now, as I promised in my previous podcast, we're going to acknowledge the 2012 winter solstice today by featuring my friend Daniel Pinchbeck as our guest speaker. As you know, uh, Daniel wrote a book titled 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And uh, also, he's widely known as a speaker and writer about uh, many things psychedelic and esoteric. However, uh, I know him best as a fellow alumnus of the Entheobotany Seminars at Palenque, where uh, Terence McKenna and his merry band of psychonauts would hold forth each January. Now, after uh, first meeting Daniel in Palenque years ago, the next time I bumped into him was at Center Camp at Burning Man. And uh, we actually bumped into one another uh, there in Center Camp uh, several different years running. And each time it seemed to be the same. I'd uh, just gotten up and was stopping by for my morning cup of coffee, and uh, Daniel was just coming in from another all-night party. Uh, he, he had a little different schedule than what I had at Burning Man. And if I can remember it, I'll post one of those pictures that I took of him on one of those mornings. And uh, as you know, you can find these program notes uh, where I'll post the picture. Uh, it'll be via psychedelicsalon.us is how you get there. Now, what I like about the photo that I uh, plan on posting is that in it, Daniel has a great big smile. And if you know him, uh, you know that Daniel is uh, somewhat serious much of the time. But having seen him in action at 3 or 4 in the morning after a night of dancing, uh, well, I'm here to attest to the fact that he actually is a really fun guy to be around. Now, what we are about to listen to is Daniel's presentation at the 2012 Palenque Norte Lectures at the Burning Man Festival. And what I really like about this particular talk is that he organized it in much the same way that Terrence McKenna worked, and that is by letting the audience lead the discussion with their questions. For speakers who make many appearances each year, I think that this is probably the best format to uh, keep their message up to date and always interesting. So right now we're going to join Daniel Pinchbeck as he discusses topics that range from 2012, consciousness and the Occupy movement, to possibilities for the future. Hi everyone. 
Welcome to Palenque Norte, day two continued. Um, we got a great lineup this afternoon. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck's about to speak, and we'll have John Allen, Rick Doblin, and others later tonight. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, I wanted to say a little note here about this cool chandelier we have in the center of the cavern with us. Um, this is actually Timothy Leary's chandelier that was generously um, given to us to use this week by Bruce Damer. Um, so <laughs> we have that to uh, to continue more psychedelic discussions under. Um, so I'm sure many of you already know who Daniel is. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck is a New York Times best-selling author of uh, Breaking Open the Head in 2012, Re Return to Quetzalcoatl. He's also the editorial director of Reality Sandwich and um, an iconic figure in the recent psychedelic movement. So. Without further ado, here's Daniel. Hello, does that work? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I was kind of thinking, I was thinking I might experiment and do this more as a <clears throat> largely Q&A or discussion. I think the same ideas will emerge and you know, probably some of you here, I mean, how many people here know my work to some extent? You know, so if you've if you've thought about the ideas and and so on, and you have like really a, a question that like you know uh, compelled you or that you kept thinking about, um, I thought I would you know give you the opportunity to yeah ask that and have a little bit more of a back and forth than is usual for these formats. But I'll start just by introducing myself and my work a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm the author of a number of books. Uh, the two books, Breaking Open the Head, came out in 2002, and it was about uh, psychedelic shamanism. I visited different cultures um, around the world, like the uh, Bwiti tribe in West Africa, who use uh, iboga uh, in their ceremonies, uh, which is now being used in the West as an experimental treatment for uh, addictions, especially heroin addiction. And... Um, uh, I wrote about ayahuasca in that book. I hung out with the tribe in the Ecuador called the Sequoia tribe, worked with them, uh, went down to Mexico, to Oaxaca, to visit one of Maria Sabina's descendants where the mushrooms were discovered in the 50s by Gordon Wasson. I also wrote about Burning Man in the book, uh, looked at a lot of ideas like Terence McKenna's ideas uh, of the uh, archaic revival. Uh, really, the book was really an effort. I started as a um, kind of uh, grew up as a scientific materialist in, in an art, artistic background, but I had no spiritual belief system. I, I thought that consciousness was just brain based, and ultimately this led me to a kind of nihilistic uh, feeling of kind of like meaninglessness and emptiness. So I decided to see if I could really make a um, inquiry into, into my own skepticism and what would be kind of like um, you know the tools that I could use for that. And at that point, I remembered my psychedelic experiences from college, so I decided to make that my, my, my area of inquiry, because those had been the most profound, you know, door-opening experiences that I'd ever had. Um, so what happened during the course of writing Breaking Open the Head, there's plenty of room, guys, if you want to come up front or whatever, you know, um, maybe leave a little card or in case people keep coming in. Um, what, what happened uh, during the course of writing Breaking Open the Head is I had an, a series of experiences, personal experiences, you know, with psychedelics and, and shamanism, and then also kind of filtering into my, you know, dream life, my ordinary life, that, that over time really convinced me that um, um, the, uh, the shamanic worldview had a lot of validity. And these other realms, these, uh, you know, the, the, that there were these other realms of the psyche that our modern, you know, culture had denied and, and suppressed. And then that really, you know, led me to think, and that, that happened through even kind of um, classically kind of occult experiences of, you know, 
incredible synchronicities or, or you know, things manifesting in strange ways and so on. So and I, I covered that in the book. And as I said, I, I began skeptically, and it was just step by step having an experience, kind of measured against things that I read, against the, you know, other, other uh, people who I met. I began to collect so many anecdotes about people who'd had similar type experiences. And um, ultimately, it led me to a profound shift in my worldview. Uh, where where I recognize that the materialist scientific paradigm was a little bit stuck, and that and that we in a, in a sense though the modern West had kind of neglected, suppressed, even violently repressed these other dimensions of the psyche. Uh, and if you go back through the history of, of you know Europe and so on, you look at the witch hunts in the Middle Ages, and the witch the witches were like the wise women who possessed the knowledge of working with visionary plants and possessed kind of access to these like intuitive and visionary domains. They were, you know, hunted out, you know, tried to be driven to extinction. And similarly, when we went on our imperialist missions, you know, if we found these intact shamanic cultures, we would often, you know, destroy the cultures, destroy the shamans, even destroy the knowledge as we burned all the books of the, uh, the Aztecs and the Maya pretty much. So, um, so while writing Breaking Open the Head, uh, I discovered um, that a lot of thought had sort of constellated around this idea that we were heading towards a kind of uh, transformation in planetary consciousness and planetary civilization. Uh, and um, Terence McKenna was one thinker around this who threw a whole series of psychedelic experiences that he had kind of beamed into uh, this idea there was acceleration taking place of creativity and novelty, technological evolution, destruction of the biosphere, that somehow this was going to culminate almost like a change of, of state, which he called the singularity or, or the eschaton. Um, and I guess one way to think about it, a friend of mine used the metaphor recently of like, you know, water sort of, sort of slowly heating up, you know, sort of going into finally a, a bubbling state and then turning into gas, you know. So you could look at like human history as, as the warming up phase, you know, perhaps we're now in that, in that bubbling phase and we don't really know what the steam phase is like yet, but we're beginning to get like faint uh, intimations, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I looked at Terence's work and Jose Arguez uh, was one of the big thinkers on, on the uh, Mayan calendar. Um, and in a, in a sense, I, th I think much more systemically than, than McKenna under, understood that, you know, you know, we tend to have this idea that these indigenous civilizations didn't really possess knowledge. They had myth or folktale or legend that somehow they hadn't really developed, you know, the level of sophisticated thought that, that we've developed. And looking at these cultures from a different angle, like Egypt or the Maya, you know, it may be that they actually had like a profound spiritual science or, or even different aspects of, of a spiritual science. And, and for the Maya, the, the particular focus of it seems to have been understanding this, um, let's say, like spiraling nature of time, the, these cycles that, that, that lead to new cycles, what they actually call different world ages, you know, or different worlds. So they talked about the transition from the... Uh, age of the fifth sun or the age of, to the age of the sixth sun as, as a way to think about this time, uh, or the Hopi uh, talk about the fourth world to the fifth world. So learning about all this stuff really led me to think about, you know, really want to study this idea of, you know, was there some type of transformation coming? You know, how many people here sort of feel that that's the case? You know, yeah, that we're kind of in this accelerating, you know, we recognize that it's unsustainable, that either we're, we're going to crash land and, and have a desolate scenario, or we're going to make some rapid transformation or evolution in, in a direction that we don't quite know or can anticipate yet. 
So, um, yeah, so my second book was called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And for, you know, four or five years, I really began to, you know, study um, these indigenous prophecies and then also look at a lot of Western thinkers because I, I felt like, you know, to, to take these ideas and make them understandable, comprehensible, we had to find ways of articulating them, you know, in our own language, you know. So then philosophy became really key to me, looking at thinkers like Nietzsche and Heidegger and, and Carl Jung and, and Rudolf Steiner and, and a whole bunch of other ones who provided, you know, kind of um, access points, you know, way, way, ways that we could see these articulations. And then we could all, you know, you can also sort of integrate the different ways people are looking at this transformation process and begin to see that they're actually saying the same things from, from different angles, you know. So that was a lot of the, the work of 2012 was, was my own personal journey <coughs> exploring the prophecies in different ways, which took me, for instance, uh, you know, back into psychedelics, uh, working with the Santo Daime in, in Brazil, which is a ayahuasca-based religion that also has a kind of prophetic understanding of this time that's very similar. Uh, took me to um, the crop circles in, in England, uh, which uh, was, was another phenomenon that at first I was extremely skeptical about. I wrote a piece about them for Wired. <clears throat> I began to you know, interview all these people who had been researching them in great depth. And then I, I was able to then go and spend, uh, a, you know, a summer down there and visit in different formations just as they appeared, you know, interview the whole range of, of people involved with the phenomenon, including artists who claim to be uh, making them, you know, but and ending up, you know, through really trying to be as diligent and scrupulous about the research as possible, um, basically convinced that um, they couldn't entirely be a human-made phenomenon, that, that some other type of... Uh, you know, consciousness or intelligence in, in, the, in, the, in the cosmos was communicating uh, to us through, through those formations. So it, one thing that's fun about where I'm at is, like, I'm not connected to, you know, the academy <coughs> or the mainstream media. So I have the freedom as a thinker to explore stuff that would, you know, implode most people's careers, you know, or, or you know, would just not, you know, not, not get them allowed to, to speak, you know. So I, I take that, you know, very seriously and keep trying to delve into these areas of kind of cultural resistance, <coughs> And usually when I see like a certain reaction, like a, like, a, like a, almost like a negative or hostile reaction, sometimes I'm like, oh, that's almost a good sign, you know, because it means that there's like hitting a nerve there. And, you know, there's because there's, everything should be up for, uh, you know, debate and, and discussion and inquiry, you know. So, yeah, so in, in 2012, I ended up, uh, you know, developing the theory that um, what's un what we're undergoing, you know, is not, you know, the end of the world or, or some type of cataclysmic destruction we may see some of that. We may see more and more of it. But really, it's about a uh, transformation of planetary consciousness and planetary civilization. I, I resonate with a lot of the ideas of uh, people like Buckminster Fuller and Barbara Marks Hubbard, you know, who talks about us making a shift from um, kind of just being in the inertia of the evolutionary process <coughs> to reaching another level of consciousness where we become co-creative with the evolutionary process which means that we recognize it's like we move from unconscious to conscious choice. And from that position, we can rethink and redesign uh, society, you know, so that it really supports uh, biodiversity and, <coughs> and local communities and, um, you know, kind of, kind of a, a whole holistic approach to, to healing the, 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 the ills of, of the planet. And that was very much the focus of a documentary that I made also called, called 2012, Time for Change, where we took the kind of philosophical ideas from my book, which we're looking at, um, 
kind of these these uh, the, these different world incarnations as as forms of consciousness and trying to kind of identify what this next level of consciousness would be. You know, for instance, how it might involve like a shift in our perception of uh, time and space. You know. Um, and I, I, I didn't want to go that deep. I really did want to have questions. So I'm not going to talk for too much longer. I mean, where, where that's led me since uh, the, you know writing that book was so. So it's all been like a, for me. It's been a very logical and rational process. You know, from recognizing, you know that you know going through the psychedelic initiation process, recognizing that we suppressed all these di- dimensions of psychic and, and shamanic uh, reality. Really, almost the most interesting aspects of of, of, of being human, maybe, um, and and that you know we we now. You know, potentially could reintegrate, you know, the mystical and the shamanic, you know, into our modern scientific technoculture as part of a transition in in, in worldview and a transition in, in how we uh, live on the planet. And so, having sort of worked through that, you know, th- then the next question for me is like, it no longer seemed to be enough to just be a writer or a thinker or, or whatever. I wanted to figure out how I could assist in, in this transition process, and that led me to start a, a company, um, Evolver. Which has both a nonprofit and a for-profit side, and it, it really began because I began to get so many uh, incredible, you know, emails uh, from people who had their own stories, like similar to mine, or in, in very, you know, profound ideas that that you know were mind-blowing. And I felt they were just sending them to me directly because there was no forum, you know, in, in the media that would actually, you know, really hold the information well and allow for a dialogue to, to develop around it. So we created a web magazine, Reality Sandwich, kind of just as a prototype and a test, and we saw it pick up really quickly and that so many people had incredible essays and articles to publish. We never paid anybody for anything. And uh, so we, that blossomed very quickly. And then we began to realize that everybody on, you know, who was reading the articles really wanted to find each other. So that kind of led us to start a, a Volver as a kind of social networking scaffolding. And, and, and we began to think about, well, how do you, you know, we, we basically we have a, you know, the, the biggest problem on earth is, I think, a consciousness problem, you know, and, and people are, aren't even aware, you know, of all the types of, like, most people don't even know what sustainability is, really, or haven't even, and I don't even like that concept. I think that concept is already in the rearview mirror, but most people haven't even gotten to that point, you know, so how are we going to, you know, we see that the media systemically suppresses, you know, helpful and valuable information, you know, so, so and the government is not going to help us out, and, and the corporations are not going to help us out. So there would need to be some type of a civil society self-organization to, uh, you know, really um, raise consciousness, to, um, you know, create, to, to, to make sure that people were kind of re-educated around a whole set of new principles and ideas, you know. So that's what we started with Evolver, the nonprofit, which is called the Evolver Network. Um, the, sub, the, the tag is building community for the new planetary culture. You know, so it's kind of using a, a, a fractal model where these groups start, you know, we give them some direction from above. We, we do monthly events that are around different themes, but it's, it's, you know, it's not necessary that every group follow those themes. It's, it's really up to the local organizers to be re- receptive and responsive to what's going to work in their community. You know, so if somebody's in Brownsville, Texas, you know, showing a movie like DMT, The Spirit Molecule, is, is just not even, no one's even going to have a context for even thinking about that. But they could begin an Evolver group where they're teaching people how to grow some of their own food, you know, or basic nutrition. So they're not always just eating, like, you know, starch and junk food and, and you know, bad meat or whatever. You know, so, so really trying to meet people where they are and then evolve their, their, their consciousness and open them to, you know, a whole set of new possibilities and really seeing that, um, you know, as, as um, 
potentially extremely difficult this transition is going to be in the next few years, um, it could also be really amazing. And, and in a sense, you know, m- most people have sort of, you know, they, they've gone to sleep or they've allowed like rust to cover over their souls, you know, and it's only by being forced into this, this crisis maybe that we're gonna all, all going to be forced to scrub off the, uh, the rust, you know. And, and I've seen, you know, for, since coming to Burning Man from the beginning that, you know, in, in a way what you have of, of people at Burning Man are kind of like the... Um, you know, the, the, the ultimately may become kind of like the planetary emergency, uh, you know, r- recuperation society or something. You know, the ones who are going to have to, you know, go to different communities to become ambassadors for these types of ideas and, and principles and practices and really, you know, do the work to, to communicate and convey them, you know, to people who haven't yet been exposed or don't, don't understand yet. So let, let me take a, a question. I'm, I mean, I can go in so many different directions, but um, if somebody has like something they really want to ask me, they should just raise their hands. Or do I? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, take the mic. Take the mic. Um, you were saying that consciousness consciousness may be one of the most uh, pressing needs right now, and, and it seems to me that overpopulation uh, is a major problem, and. Uh, and that is being funded by the corporate religions or however you want to call that. Um, what And you never hear it mentioned anywhere. And what can be done about overpopulation and sustainability? Well, I mean, the, the, probably the, the, the best way to begin to... Um you know, address overpopulation is, is to uh, equalize and liberate women in societies around the world. Because as soon as women's power uh, approaches that of men, the birth rate starts to decline uh, rapidly to, to re- below re- re- replacement levels. Okay, so so you know, and and I think that I mean I'm a little bit leery around making population the big issue because that can also quickly turn into a kind of elitist thing, like you know who gets to survive or whatever. I mean, at the moment, you know, we're using the resources of the planet incredibly inefficiently. You know, like, like um, I mean, this was Buckminster Fuller's, you know, whole thing was that, you know, we really have the resources to, to you know, to, to create, you know, a, a decent way of life and being for everybody on Earth, you know, um, if, if the resources are allocated uh, differently. You know, so, for instance, you know, in New York City, you know, we interviewed these aquaponics people for my film, and they said that if you had green roofs all over New York, you could be growing like 80% of the food for the city right there. You know, at the moment, the average morsel of food is traveling 2,000 miles to get to the city. You know, so that's just incredibly uh, inefficient. You know, so, so yeah, so, so, you know, we don't even really know if those, you know, if, if, we, if we had the... Um, you know, co-creative capacity to redesign our systems so that they were actually functioning efficiently, you know, maybe we could support 7 billion. Maybe we would still see that population go down because a lot of those children are being born out of desperate circumstances which, which need to be addressed, you know. Um, yeah, what, one of the um, ways of thinking about this that, that, that I really love is um, from a book called Spontaneous Evolution by uh, Steve Behrman, a uh, political scientist, and, and Bruce Lipton, a cell biologist. And, and their, their hypothesis is that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of um, reaching an evolutionary threshold where we're going to self-realize humanity as, as one collective organism, you know, in a symbiotic relationship with the Earth. 
you know, and they look at that in parallel with um, the evolution of, uh, you know, all sorts of ecosystems, which when they're immature ecosystems are marked by competition and aggression and territoriality. But once they find a way to uh, synergize or become symbiotic, they, 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 they go into a different mode. And the example they use is, is our own bodies, which are these vast colonies of microorganisms that somehow at a certain point in the evolutionary process, instead of competing, they began to, to collaborate and form these more complex organs, you know. So our bodies are these masterpieces of symbiosis, and you don't have the, uh, you know, liver attack to, attacking, you know, the lymph nodes and so on. You know, so, so, so the idea would be that if we were to reach this, uh, attain the self-realization of humanity as one singular organism, you know, we would rethink uh, the, the, all the flows of resources, you know, to, in, in an efficient uh, way, you know. Um, so we can go more into that, but uh, I think that's a, that's a helpful way to think about it. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say about it is, you know, we also don't know exactly the you know the destiny of what's up. I mean, Alan Watts used to talk about um, how you know, in a way, the the you know, just in the same way, the apple tree apples, like it's natural for the apple tree to create an abundance of apples. You know, the earth peoples. You know, the earth seems to like peopling. You know, well, may maybe, you know, maybe the earth is peopling in the same way an apple tree apples, you know, because those seeds are ultimately going to go to other fields, you know, in other places. You know, maybe we are meant to become a space-faring species and, and terraform and colonize other worlds, you know. And what seems like a surplus of people now, you know, might have a whole purpose in, in the larger scheme of things, you know. Any thoughts on consciousness itself, whether it might be top-down or bottom-up? Or what it is? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, I mean, I, I guess uh, my, my sort of ultimately where I arrived in terms of my own mystical you know, perspective was, was pretty much identical to you know, Vedanta, which is Hindu mysticism, and this idea that there's ultimately uh, you know, one consciousness that um, you know, in order to learn about its creative capacities you know, fra fragments itself into these separate individual identities you know, which, which, which then explore and discover different aspects, you know, of, of the whole, you know. That would, be, that would be the opposite of evolution then, top down. Well, it's not really the opposite. I mean, you know, I think also like part of the, the, the shift in our way of thinking is from, is from dualities uh, to polarities. You know, like dualities, it's like black or white. Polarities are like, you know, like a, the yin-yang symbol where you have the black has some white in it and the white has some black in it. So the opposites kind of include each other and mesh with each other you know so you definitely have bottom evolution up you know happening but at the same time yeah you may have I and mean, this is what uh, Amit Goswami who's a physicist and, and a kind of Indian thinker wrote a book called The Self-Aware Universe and um yeah, he, he basically argued very similar to Aurobindo's ideas that there's like a, you know, a sort of a, an underlying consciousness which is organizing itself back to that kind of original freedom that it had by using um, kind of like, a, you know, the, the hardware imprints of the physical form and then the software imprints of the mind and then, and then iterating and, and evolving itself so that it re re rediscovers its own original creative freedom. You know, and Aurobindo or talked about that as a shift from uh, into what he called the supramental condition. You know, so that would be another way of thinking about what what this transition you know could mean. You know, which doesn't mean it's going to happen December twenty first, two thousand twelve. I think we're we're but we're seeing the, the you know the, the the gathering you know impetus you know in, in this area, and it's just because we become more aware of it. You know, we also can help guide it in in a way. You know. One of my favorite quotes is by Alan Watts. He said, uh, the universe is God playing hide-and-seek with himself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Question back here. 
in your book, uh, 2012, um, you were talk. Uh, I haven't read it recently, but I remember there there's some parts in it where you were saying, well, this is going to happen in 2009, or this is going to happen in uh, 2011, and maybe it didn't happen. Like, ha are you disappointed with some of the things maybe that haven't occurred, or are you keeping a scorecard, or how, how do you feel about uh if you go back and look at the book, I mean, I, I talked about Kalaman, but I actually critiqued his ideas because he, he was saying that there was going to be this, you know, that the mind calendar actually was going to end in November 2011 and there would be collective enlightenment at that point. And I actually kind of put that down in the book. But I, I did end up, you know, kind of resonating. The book came out in 2006, uh, you know, with the idea that we'd see a financial crash in 2008. And, and we did. And actually a bunch of friends of mine who were, you know, even in finance were actually quite impressed that, like, I you know, hooked into that, you know, so I think the, the book, I stand by it, you know, I, I feel that it's, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we're seeing this evolutionary process accelerating, you know, and uh, on so many levels, and we see that even in something like the, um, you know, the Occupy movement, you know, I thought was a really fascinating uh, piece of, of, of this evolutionary process, you know, uh, being exposed in a sense, because in, in New York, like Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, was um, seen as a protest movement, and the media actually, um, you know, obviously did a lot of distortion around it and so on. But actually, it was much more a process movement. And what was happening was really an effort to figure out what is this this next level of social organism or social life form that has to emerge, you know, from this over rigidified structure, you know, of of this capitalist, you know, post industrial disaster. You know, so in that little square of park, they had like, you know, recycling. Gray water, you know, decision making, open decision making, a library, a meditation, and a spirituality center. You know, music area it was like it was like they created a new a new cell, you know, in some future social organism. You know, and and it, and it was like just breaking up through through the crust, you know, of of the of the current situation. And then it was of course stomped down, you know, brutally, you know. But that maybe is also part of part of the process, and that is going to somehow that energy. Uh, maybe under some other name, I don't even think the name is is important or or you know whatever. But you could you could see that this next thing is seeking to, to constellate, you know. And um, I think we'll see another you know push in that direction over the next you know who knows months or years, you know. And are, are you working on any books right now? Uh, yeah, I mean I have a book that's that's long overdue about you know pretty much about this whole idea of how this this. Um, you know, shift into this next phase of, of planetary civilization could occur, and um, and even a strategy uh, for it. You know, which is similar to what I was just talking about with Evolver, which is really, you know, you need some kind of civil society infrastructure that self-organizes and raises consciousness, and and you know, creates a participatory uh, mode of engagement. You know, where people feel like responsible agents. You know, in a planetary community, rather than, you know, ego-based competitors. You know, seeking their short-term gain. You know. So, so um, the book got delayed because of the work on Evolver, you know, which is, which has taken a lot of uh, effort on my part. Yeah, thanks for Evolver. It's a great, great. Thank you. Site. Yeah. yeah. More more questions or uh, thoughts or comments? Yeah. Um. So, what would you think about? What would you have to say on the idea of maybe trying to step it up a notch and creating like a global? network or organization trying to start accumulating property and creating like eco-social homelands for people to live and grow food and do whatever kind of work they love in order to share with each other and not feel like diaspora on our own home planet 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that sounds like a great plan. I mean, the question is, how do you get the, you know, the, the capital to, to buy the land? You know, uh, but I mean, um, I think we're moving in that direction. I mean, you know, so many people from, you know, e- e- you know, th- there's obviously, a, you know, a ruling elite, you know, who, who are trapped in a, in a certain mindset. And, and, you know, there's obviously the whole question of how conspiratorial that is, which is a kind of a deep rabbit wormhole that, that, you know, can be pondered till infinity, you know. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people even within, you know, the ruling structures who are, you know, awakening. Um, but then there's a lot who are not. And even at, at Burning Man, I see like, uh, you know, so some of those people would have the capital and resources to help a movement like you're describing. But even at Burning Man, I see right now such a toggling, you know, in a way like, you know, coming here for 12 years, there's actually more like social stratification and class stratification here than there were like 10 years ago. You know, have a lot of people who are, you know, because it's become hip, you know, and cool to be here who come here, but they, you know, they fly in, they have everything set up for them. You know, their art car is built by like Mexican labor or whatever. You know, I'm serious. It's like, you know, I was, I was at a camp uh, of all these wealthy people visiting a friend there. And, um, you know, they, 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 these, 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 they looked like, you know, Latinos or whatever. They, they were clearly hired workers. They were decorating the, the art car for the wealthy people. There's these shade structures everywhere. No, nobody has come yet. So all the shade structures is empty. The, the workers have a tent right in the middle of the sun next to the art car. So nobody even had like the thought or the empathy to say, you know, you guys could actually have your tent under the, one of these shade structures that are empty. You know, so in that way, I feel there's still like a big like um, empathy deficit, you know, uh, that, um, you know, I, the only thing I can think of doing is keep calling it to people's attention, you know, be, be, because, you know, what we, we you know, it, it's easy to empathize with people who are like yourself. It takes a little bit more imagination to empathize with those who aren't. But, you know, that that's what I mean, in a way, it's like um, if we're going to evolve into a higher state of a planetary planetized community, you know, that, that's going to be based on us um, developing our empathic uh, capacities to a much greater degree. A- and um, it seems like a, a race against time, whether that's going to happen to me sometimes, you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe we could remove some of the financial elitism from the situation by creating a really powerful, like, gift-share network so people could exchange exactly what they have to share for exactly what they need in order to create what they love. Yeah, well, I mean, so, yeah, one of the things we looked at in my film, we also, through Evolver, we published two books on the subject. One, one is an anthology of essays called What Comes After Money, uh, and the other is a book by uh, Charles Eisenstein called Sacred Economics. And so, so really looking at the, the cutting edge of, of thinking around, you know, what would be an alternative financial model, you know, because, um, you know, we, we really have to think about how, you know, when you grow up in capitalist society, you t- tend to think that the way money is is natural and organic. You know, you think, oh, it's just like it's almost like a you know a plant or something. It's just money works in this way. And I remember that was like my first mushroom trip. You know, I, I went to a store to use money, and suddenly I was like horrified. I was like, you know, this is the stuff that like we care about. It's like, you know, green and, and dirty and brown and paper. You know, um, you know. So so you know. And then we see that because money, um, you know accrues interest, it, it, for, it, it creates artificial scarcity, you know, the stock market enforces, you know, competition, it enforces, you know, kind of, um, um, you know, maximizing profit for shareholder value, which means that corporations are almost like forced then to uh, degrade or corrupt or avoid environmental regulations and so on, you know, so it's not a sound system, you know. So the question is, you know, so if we step back and we say, okay, money was a human creation, you know, what would be the next form of money or the next 
ways that people could exchange value. And the first thing you might think is, well, you don't actually need to just have one way to exchange value. There doesn't have to be a monoculture there. You know, you could actually have a whole different, a whole set of tools for people to exchange value. You know, or ways to do it. You know, and, and one of them would be what you're saying would be a, a more developed, you know, trust and gift network. You know, but also where there's like tracings of people's histories. You know, so you have that a little bit with something like couch surfing. You know, which is I think is a very profound. You know, model. You know, for the future, where you take all these relationships that were monetized and you uh, demonetize them. You know, turn them back into trust relationships. Um, another idea would be a currency that has that that lost value the longer you tried to hoard it or hold on to it. So it would have a negative interest charge. And there were there were. Uh, cultures in the past that use such a currency even in the middle ages and so on you know so in that in that sense if you had like a global trading currency that quickly lost value um, you know when you had a, a surplus of it you would be much more inclined to share it with the people around you because you really wouldn't be able to uh, to hoard it you know so that's another I idea that's been proposed there's a set of proposals another idea is local credit clearinghouses where a group of manufacturers and businesses that that produce products goods and services can band together and create their own credit and then in, you know issue zero 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 interest uh, loans you know to those to those who need it in their community you know so there's a lot of creative thinking and that's something we've been doing with evolver is um Kind of, uh, you know, among the events we've been, uh, ideas we've been covering is these alternative economic models, and we've had a few spores kind of incubate uh, new currency projects. So in Baltimore, there's one called the B Note, which is a local currency that's designed to keep money circulating in, in the community rather than going out to the multinational corporations. Hi, Daniel. Nice to meet you. Hi. Uh, I've come all the way from the UK. I want to move away from the corporation size a little bit. Sure. Um, I want to know whether you think that the psychedelics as in DMT and ayahuasca help or accelerate the sort of awakening or the ascension process as a whole. I mean, years ago I used to experiment with mushrooms and acid. I've never had a bad trip, but I'm going to Peru over the winter solstice. And I'm looking to have a go with the ayahuasca. Um, I, I can get DMT back home. I've not tried it yet, but... Is it um, would it accelerate or help my ascension process or the, the sort of awakening process? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I you know I, I wouldn't be maybe prescriptive for any one individual. I mean, you might go and have a horrible time, but in in general, I think that yes, for most people, it's um, you know a huge catalyst for for you know uh, self discovery and self healing and and then kind of processing you know all, all the stuff that you need to process. So you can get to another you know level of, of, of understanding. And um, yeah, I think I think that ayahuasca is a major catalyst for this planetary shift right now. I mean, um, it's been very interesting. The, my last, you know, the breaking open the head came out in two thousand two, and at that point, when I gave talks, like almost nobody knew what it was. And now, you know, even in like you know mainstream communities, it's like well known about, and people are seeking it out for all different reasons. You know, like. I met these artists at a party, and they were saying that, you know, then totally much more straight-laced kind of, you know, background. And, and they were saying now they're finding that a lot of their friends are doing it because they've noticed in the art community that even if somebody's a really bad artist, if they go and do a bunch of ayahuasca, their art gets, like, much, much better quickly, you know. So so it's really having an, and it's amazing. It's, you know, ayahuasca is a vine, and I feel it's moving kind of like vine, vine-like, you know, sinuously kind of like through our, our society, you know, where like people are bringing it to like hip-hop stars and rock musicians and, you know, uh, people in the, you know, major ruling elite families and so on, you know, and, and um, yeah, I think, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a major uh, shifter for sure, you know. Uh, the, the other thing I would want to say about it, though, is it's like, 
then there are levels in our own learning process, you know, around how to how to make use of this stuff. Like we're still still quite naive about it, you know. So so you know the shaman you know, in the counterculture has now become lionized as this heroic figure. And some of them are, you know, but also in a lot of Amazonian cultures, you know, the, the, the shaman, you know, and the sorcerer are really not that distinct, you know, and, you know, the, these, the energies of these, uh, you know, that you, that you can almost, you can almost like build up an energy battery, you know, of, of psychic force, you know, from using these medicines. But if you're not clean in your intentions, then that can also reverberate uh, negatively, you know, uh, yeah, around but, you. I mean, when I first experimented with psychedelics, yeah. I was way, oh, I, was, I was a kid, so I didn't really understand it, but it gave me a bigger understanding on the, on the broader picture. But now I'm sort of coming through this awakening phase. I like to experiment and go back and dip my toes and, and yeah. see where it leads me now while I'm sort of on this learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. You want to pass the, guy to the next question? Uh, changing topics again. Uh, sure. Do you think, uh, what do you think, uh, the, has Burning Man had any uh, cultural uh, impacts uh, outside of this uh, community? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Burning Man is one of the, the catalysts, you know, like ayahuasca or LSD or iboga. I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean, first of all, it's kind of a, um, or, you know, or, or, organic, um, you know, rediscovery of these uh, mystery uh, traditions, you know, that you had in ancient Greece where people would come together for some type of uh, initiatory ritual celebration. You know, it, it has aspects of all of those things, whether it's, you know, like a, like a ritual where you dance for a week and don't sleep, you know, or you take lots of substances and dance for a week and don't sleep, you know, to try to push yourself into another state of consciousness, you know. And I, I find there are a lot of things. I mean, obviously, there's the... Uh, you know, the gifting culture, you know, there's the way that these different communities or tribes form and then how they learn how to, how to work together, you know, where, where you see kind of something very organic happening again, you know, where, you know, for instance, like there are, you know, leaders or chiefs often in these, in the different Burning Man tribes, you know, but that's, that's an honorific earned through like a, a rational use of authority. It's not from a, you know, somebody controlling the situation that that won't work. It's somebody who's actually really good at mediating and problem solving and, and seeing maybe a little further ahead than other people can. You know, so there's some kind of, you know, it's, it's, there's just, yeah, I think that this is an incredible laboratory for a human interaction. And, um, you know, it's it's crucial. And then people come here with such an awakening, leave here with such an awakening of their sense of how much more is possible for human beings than they conceived. I mean, one, one of the, the, the main things that really, you know, always has inspired me about it. And obviously there are problems with it, like the class stratification and so on. But, um, you know, how simple it is. If you, if you bring people together and you give them a set of different game rules, you know, from the normal society game rules, how, and if their rules are better or, or more fun or, 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 you know, yeah, just, just lead to better outcomes, how everybody adapts in, in a moment without even a thought, you know. And even, even the difficult parts of it become, become part of the pleasure in a way, you know. So it shows you in a way how easy it would be to, 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 you know, you could reconstruct society, you know, with a set of different rules or ideas, you know. Yeah, I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of shamanic ritual in exploring entheogens and possibly what are the dangers of it as well? Are, are, could you be taken advantage of? Are there... You know, cult aspects or the, what aspects? Cult aspects or, or mm -hmm. groups that essentially could take advantage of of entheogens as sort of the path to spiritual enlightenment. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I generally tend to think that um, 
you know, ex- exploring. If you get it, if you if you're somebody whose propensity is for psychedelic experience, and you have a number of, of, of experiences, I think ultimately becomes very important to uh, connect with some type of uh, lineage, uh, like an indigenous elder lineage, and and it, it, you know. It's not fully like I can't give you a totally rational explanation, but I think it's well. I mean, my explanation would be that um, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, they talk about the importance of, of lineage. You know, of, of connecting with a tradition of past practitioners who've done something for a long time and have done it well and have used it, you know, mainly for for the best purposes. You know, I, I think that that has the same effect, and it's almost like. Um, there's there's like an, a morphogenetic field of protection, you know, ar- around these uh, lineages, you know. So if, so if you connect with them, yeah, it's like it, it it's you know it almost like anchors into your subconscious somehow. Like um, with iboga, when I worked with the buidi, like ever ever since then, I would have dreams around, you know, like this this big African man or somebody like you know Oprah Winfrey, but an African version. And I could just tell, you know, waking up from the dreams that it was almost like the spirit of Iboga that was still in communication with me and, and, and sort of giving me little hints and directions and so on. You know, so, so yeah, I think, I think it's, really, um, it's, it's really important to connect with a, a lineage, uh, whether it's peyote or ayahuasca, you know, um, uh, you know or mushrooms. Um, and, and I guess I have a little bit of a, of a distinction sometimes between those people, you know, in the psychedelic community who, are, who still, still see it almost entirely in, 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 a, in, a, in a medicalized context or, or in a self-exploration context. I, I think there are other aspects to it, other, other dimensions to it, you know, and, and that the, the, the field, you know, that's created around these practices, you know, really has a tremendous uh, impact, you know, and... and, and um, you know, I mean, for instance, yeah, and they can, you know, become a little bit culty, I guess, but everything is a cult in a weird way. You know, I mean, the, as soon as we start using language, we create a myth, and then that becomes a belief structure, which then becomes like a cult. I mean, psychedelics at least hopefully allow you to keep, like, breaking down the, 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 the uh, you know, the belief structure that wants to, you know, kind of overtake reality in a way, you know? Yeah. Hi. Hey there. Um, I just, I've been listening to kind of what we're saying, and um, I, I just wanted by, to... By the way, there's plenty of room up front here if you guys make a card or people can come in if they want to. I wanted to know your thoughts on kind of breaking this, like, 80-20 power structure. We've kind of talked about it in, like, the Burning Man context. It certainly happened in the Occupy context. You see it in social networks. You see it in um, developing countries that, you know, the second it starts to, like, the starts to organize that you get this very like elite power structure um, that looks down and feels superior and also um, will kind of hoard the resources. Um, and it seems kind of ingrained, not just in human nature, but in, in actual physical nature as well. And just, you know, as we collectively try to create these solutions, like what are your thoughts on kind of breaking that pattern that you see you know, across the board. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in, in a way, like, um, I mean, um, it really comes down to the to sort of like the um, underlying cultural mythology or something like that. Like, um, you know, like in tribal cultures, you know, the chief was generally the person who owned the least possessions because their nobility of spirit was demonstrated by their generosity, you know, so you wouldn't have like a, a chief like Donald Trump, you know, building the biggest towers and casinos and so on. That would be like atrocious, you know. So, so you know, because because we began to prioritize and value, you know, material possessions, you know, and then what? We, I guess you could look at why did we do that? And I think like um, 
you know, the, the excessive desire for possessions and consumerism, you know, goes back to this kind of spiritual nihilism, you know, because people really don't think there's any continuity of the soul or the spirit. The only value that they have is like, I have to get it all now. Like I got to, you know, take out the other guy. I've got to like grow as big as I can. But it's total nonsense, really, because, you know, if they're still trapped in that, that nihilistic or materialist worldview, you know, at death, there's not going to be anything anyway, you know, remaining, you know. So, so, you know, from my perspective, it's first people, you know, going through the, the inner work to recognize that, you know, we're, we're, we're in a longer cycle, you know, of, of I, I think, you know, re, you know, incarnations, you know, like the Tibetan Buddhists talk about or uh, Rudolf Steiner talked about in, in the West, you know. So it's like, um, you know, then, then that brings about a, a, a deep change of, of value and, and perspective, you know, because then really, you know, what, what you give is going to be, you know, what the value is, you know? Yeah, I totally understand. And I'm, I'm on the same level. Yeah. I just, I feel like when I read all this stuff, we talk a lot about like how things can be. And we, we walk in a lot of circles about like, how do we actually get there? How do we break these structures yeah. that are in place? So, 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 I mean, that's, I mean, from, so the, my best plan for that has been what I've been seeking to do with Evolver, mm -hmm. which is create an alternative media to get more people on board, get people to share information and new ideas and then build a community infrastructure so that those ideas are, are, you know, are anchored in practicality too. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the Dalai Lama said that, you know, if you want, um, you know, if you want people to change, you know, you have to show them the path to a better life. If they see that path, then they'll take it. You know, so now we're seeing these structures, you know, breaking down, you know, and people are getting, you know, sick and poor and miserable and so on. Well, if, you know, an alternative is pre presented to them where they can live healthily, you know, by learning how to take care of their own water and their own food again, and it's actually made, you know, through effective media and art, you know, into something beautiful and, and desirable where they're actually going to be, you know, relocalizing, you know, reconnecting with their communities and so on, you know, then that I think, um, you know, provide, provides a way forward, you know. Thank you. That's really empowering. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that, um, and in Breaking Open the Head, um, that you were very disappointed with scientific materialism uh, and the skepticism it kind of fed. Uh, but you just mentioned that the value or one of the values of entheogens is that they can kind of constantly deconstruct the belief systems that arise out of the experience. How is that not just another form of the same skepticism that you were wrestling with earlier, just in a, you know, chemical fashion? Well, I guess when I get offended by, by, by sort of this, uh, the scientific materialist form of skepticism is I, I generally, you know, inquire, having done the deep inquiry like myself that the books represent, you know, I, I had that skepticism but then, I, then I broke through it kind of phenomenologically, you know, by having these experiences that, you know, to me convincingly, you know, irrefutably in a sense demonstrate, you know, that there are these other psychic levels of, of reality. Now, eventually I would say that there's going to be, you know, a, a more expanded form of science that will encompass, you know, all these other ways of being and knowing, you know, I mean, I, I mean, um, um, you know, I feel that, that, that the development of science and technology, you know, is an aspect of human evolution and an aspect of the evolution of consciousness, you know. So, 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 so you know, you could see that our, our technology, technological projections, you know, really do, you know, constantly transform our way of being and our way of thinking, you know. So, and, and, and you know, part of this idea of this, this accelerating process around it is that we're, you know, that we're creating tools faster and faster. Those tools then reflect 
us back on ourselves, which then make us, you know, help us to iterate like the next set of, set of tools, you know, and that and that's happening like faster and faster, you know. So so it's it's not like saying, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not against the scientific project. I just think that um, in, in a way, what it what it what it avoided was the phenomenological uh, experience, you know, which, which is what like a, some of the philosophers in the 20th century recognized and it's really where indigenous thought begins you know like 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 even, even our way of what's that well do you mean something different between empirical data or evidence and phenomenological i mean do you yeah, mean it, it like in purely well, in the hegelian sense, sense it's, it's actually you know take, taking yourself in as the primary datum you know because you don't anything else is just hearsay in a way you know i just wish to mention um to that very point there is a, a talk um following this one um, which will hopefully expound and explore um, that area of um, scientific exploration, investigation, and its implications on our lives and its um, us in the biospheres. And I think it will it ties in very lovely with um, the direction this this uh, question and answer is going. I was wondering what you thought about the the noosphere, what uh, Jose Arguelles uh, talk talks about uh, or talked about. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you feel about that? How many people here are familiar the with the concept of the newosphere, first of all? So, uh, yeah, newos is a Greek word that means mind. And this idea that came from um, uh, this Russian thinker, Vernatsky, we were just talking about, and a um, Catholic uh, French paleontologist and mystic, Telhard de Chardin, uh, they came up with, they sort of almost simultaneously or congruently came up with this concept of the newosphere. So the newos is a Greek word that means mind, and the idea is that just as the planet has like a uh, biosphere and an atmosphere and, and a mineral level, which is the lithosphere, there could also be thought of as like an envelope of mind or of thought or of consciousness around the planet. And, and that, that, that newosphere has always been there and it's been feeding kind of uh, information, you know, through the biosphere. And it's been, you know, spurring us along in, in this evolutionary development that's included, you know, up to this point, the development of culture and civilizations and technologies and all this stuff. But, but it's still been somewhat unconscious. So this idea that, that humanity is going to, you know, consciously kind of uh, access or realize uh, our, our relationship to the newosphere. Uh, I mean, there, there are thinkers who even have, give it a physical correlate. They talk about the Van Allen radiation belts and potentially this layer of, of consciousness or thought around the planet kind of woven uh, between, between these belts, you know, is one way of thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so one idea that, that I think is also, a, a, you know, for me, you know, if we... A, a radical idea of how of what what one aspect of this transformational process you know would would have to do with um you know our our latent psychic capacities you know i mean how many people here recognize that that we as human beings have psychic capacities you know and have had you know somewhat direct how many people here think that we don't have any psychic capacities or are just agnostic on it you know? okay. <laughs> i'll talk later <laughs> Um, but anyway, a lot of a lot of more and more people seem to be coming to this realization that we have these psychic abilities that work in different ways. I mean, you know, it can be synchronicities, it can be telepathic foretellings, it can be even sometimes you know objects, you know, telekinesis, objects moving around. It can be you know somebody taking a psychic blow from somebody that actually like hurts them. You know, if there's a lot of hatred there or something. You know, so so you know. This could also be potentially an aspect of the evolution that we're entering into, that, that, that um, you know, in a way, like these shamanic cultures really lived in this realm of the psyche and the realm of, of magic, but they couldn't 
you know, they didn't have the scientific and technological infrastructure that, 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 that we have. You know, well, well maybe, you know, we, we could actually begin to access our psychic capacities, uh, you know, in, in a cooperative framework, you know, for positive benefits on the earth. Um, you know, so for instance, like, um, you know, in my book, I wrote about the Hopi, you know, and there was a Cambridge anthropologist who lived with the Hopi for years, and he was a, you know, skeptical empiricist, but he had to admit, you know, from, from his time with them, that they were, they were able to do things that he didn't have an explanation for in his way of understanding things. Like, sometimes he would go to meet one of the elder Hopi with a list of questions, and the, and the guy would, would answer each question in, in order without him asking any of them. You know, and he said that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes he would go to one of their rain dances, and um, clouds would gather after like 20 minutes of dancing and like a blazing hot sun. You know, rain rain would fall, and he said that this this happened often enough that that it seemed that they were influencing the the climate conditions. You know, we also see things like the. Um, Global Consciousness Project at Princeton University, which put random number generators around the planet and, and began to, to discover that, you know, when there were major uh, events of uh, a collective global awareness, like the O.J. Simpson verdict or 9-11, these, these, these random number generators would deviate from, from randomness and they would go into some kind of higher state of coherence. You know, so, so they began to see that just... You know, observing the, the, these generators around the planet, they were beginning to see the emergence of something like a global brain or, or at least a global nervous system. And they also noted things that like um, with 9-11, you know, although the, uh, the, the deviation from statistical randomness peaked a few hours after the planes hit the building, uh, it started uh, a few hours before. You know, so not only was there, you know, a, 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 you know, a understanding after the fact, it was almost there was like an innate um, precognition, you know, that something was about to happen in, in, in the collective field, you know. So so one of my I guess from I, I, I'm very uh, taken with Jose's idea. And I think one of this one of the aspects of us becoming, you know, consciously aligned or, or self-realizing humanity as a collective organism, you know, in conjunction with with this newest sphere might be that we are, are going to go into a conscious use of our psychic capacities. And an analogy for this would be what happened with electricity. You know, in the 18th century, we discovered, you know, Benjamin Franklin flew the kite, you know, he got hit by the lightning, you know, they discovered there was this tremendous force, but for, you know, a number of decades, they didn't really know what to do with it. You know, at first, you, you didn't know how to store it, you didn't know how to transmit it reliably, you know, and once humanity figured out how to make use of that, that energy, you know, in, in merely like 100, 150 years, we were able to change the entire biogeochemical environment of the earth, you know, through the power of thought, you know, and, and through this energy that, we, that we'd come into contact with, you know, so, so, so you know, the, the idea would be that if we see the tendency, you know, this is what uh, the, the Vernadsky talks about in the biosphere of, of human thought having become, you know, a geophysical event on the planet over the last centuries, you know, there, there might also be another, another leap in that, you know, where, where, the, where our, where our co-creative capacities increase to a whole nother dimension, you know. So uh, synchronicities and uh, psychic uh, abilities seem to be enhanced while on psychedelics, I've yeah. noticed. And it's been pretty profound through my yeah. life. Through How many people feel that they have more synchronicities and psychic events on psychedelics? <laughs> okay, we, we covered that. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. Oh, Did you oh. finish your question? Oh, that was what I was just, I, I was just making a statement more than anything. But uh, I appreciate the, the, the news here. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> Jose had the idea also that there could be like a, um, you know, an event would mark this um, development of the new spheric consciousness. 
And his idea was to do a um, global meditation on creating a, a circumpolar rainbow bridge uh, on, on the date of the last day of the Mayan, you know, the Mayan long count, which is uh, f- December 21st, 2012. And, um, yeah, he, he believed that, uh, you know, if enough people were to do this, it could create this visible rainbow around the earth. Now, I know that sounds far-fetched. Uh, I have a number of friends who did a workshop with him in the early 90s in South America, which was all about the Rainbow Bridge. And apparently on the last day, as they came out of the, 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 the last meditation, there were rainbows all over the sky, you know. Um, and, and then recently, we had an Evolver event in Pittsburgh. And as part of my talk, I was talking about this stuff and the Rainbow Bridge. You know, the next day, at the, right after our closing ceremony, we went outside and there was a double rainbow r- across the sky. You know, so, so I, 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 I mean... I myself don't exactly know how much credence to place in it, but it seems like there, there's something wants to, to occur. So, I mean, if you guys want to get involved with the Rainbow Bridge meditation, you know, you can look it up. I mean, Jose Arguelles, Rainbow Bridge, he gives you the, 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 the you know, how to do it and so on. And Evolver also published a book called uh, Manifesto for the Newosphere, which uh, was the last book Jose uh, wrote before he died last year. And uh, we, we, that has a lot of information about the Newosphere and the Rainbow Bridge uh, in it, you know. It- if we can't make it for 2012, maybe we can like, you know, work on it for 2013 or 14. Right. You know, work in I, progress. I know Jose talked about the time quake that happens. Uh, or what's that? Let me see if there's any other questions for anybody else. Yeah, back there. Hi, um, I was wondering if you could speak about um, with the rise of the use of shamanic plants and shamanic rituals, uh, just about cultural reappropriation in the way that. Um, you see these ceremonies being performed uh, everywhere and um, it almost has seemed to me in some of my travels to be like this parallel industry sort of like in this industry of enlightenment that if you have enough money you can do enough ceremonies to get there or sort of this idea that I, I've seen people have and wondering um, with all these ceremonies taking place uh, the dangers of people uh, misusing them or not fully understanding them? Yeah, in a way, it's kind of chaos out there right now. But, I mean, that's kind of the situation we're in. We're still learning about this stuff, and I think that's probably a necessary part of the process. You know, people have asked – some people get very negative about the idea of ayahuasca tourism, but from my you know perspective, it's actually very valuable. Um, like, we've done um, retreats now with uh, Sequoia elders from Ecuador – and, um, you know, basically in their own context, you know, they've got the missionaries and, and the oil companies preying upon them. You know, there's about 700 of them left. And uh, they're, they're whatever's left of their ayahuasca culture is quickly evaporating. Actually having, you know, rich, uh, you know, comparatively rich white people, you know, work with them, you know, care about their knowledge and so on. It actually, you know, keeps the knowledge alive. And, and even then, if it becomes an economic avenue for them, then, you know, their grandkids don't have to go work for the oil companies. They could actually train in these in indigenous, you know, their, their, their native practices. You know, so I, I think actually... You know, handled properly, it can be a very positive thing. And, and you know, but right now it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's an open field and, and a lot of different efforts are being tried and some people are manipulative and, you know, and, and that's where you really have to, as, as with anything, 
you know that that's so delicate and, and crucial you know to your own evolution you know you have to lo- use great discernment you know you don't just go to any shaman you know talk to people who've, who've worked with that person you know or re- research them you know carefully you know I mean for me I was really helped by having a journalist background because it, it gave me the tools to kind of investigate you know b- before before having these these types of experiences but I think it's, but I think it has to be a good thing. I mean, ayahuasca is now becoming like something you need to do if you're part of a certain culture. In the same way, yoga became, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, and uh, you know that's also been kind of balderalized and often it's more of just like an exercise program than you know people really. I mean, if you look at the the bodies of the you know the, the great yogis, you know, in their seventies or eighties, they don't look like super fit. They often have like really strange bellies, and, and you know they're you know they're not they're not looking for you know a great body. They're looking for to, to break the bonds of, of you know of existence and achieve some kind of liberation. You know, so so yes, I mean, but even so, in the transitional phase, it's awesome. You know that 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 that's become a major cultural trend, and I think it's awesome that ayahuasca is becoming a major cultural trend. And and then also, I think often that's. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, when something becomes hip, you know, those people who want to be hip will do it, you know. And once they do, but but with ayahuasca, you know, it's a phenom- It's once again, it's a phenomenological experience that actually transforms you, you know, from the inside, you know. So let's make that as hip as we possibly can, you know. So I'm just noticing in this conversation that it, when we talk about donning this new era and the breakdown of social structures and institutions that are created, that we need to rethink. Um, I'm just aware that most of these institutions were created under a patriarchy. So as we move towards this new era, particularly when we talk about ayahuasca, uh, which is a feminine representation of this new era, how do you see that fitting in? What roles of women and the divine feminine do you see for helping facilitate that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, I think that we have to, you know, somehow uh, evolve into a true partnership society. Um, you know, we're not obviously. You know, we're not going to flip back to, to to matriarchy. You know, but we're seeing the the, the, the disintegration of, of the patriarchal form and the and the, and the sort of the, the ego structure, maybe, which is kind of the the, the exemplary aspect of that, or the, the the negative aspect of that. You know, um, so how does that look? I mean, it's something that I think about a lot, uh, and I'm probably going to talk. I'm, I'm giving a talk on Thursday at at uh, Red Lightning at 5:45. Uh, I've been visiting recently a community in uh, Portugal called Tamara, uh, which is uh, was started by German philosophers. They first had a community near Berlin called Zeg, and then they started Tamara, Tamara about about 20 years ago. And, and essentially, what 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 you know what they recognized was working in the left uh, in the in the 70s in Germany that these uh, issues around around love, gender, sexuality were the core issues that 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 were core political issues that really weren't being dealt with and they were leading to you know the, the 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 breakup of these communities or these movements and so on so they basically created like a like a research and development uh community laboratory to to break through to different models of relationship and they they what they've devised is a, a sharing and, and non-possessive model of love and relationship where, where where it's like a community structure that has a number of different like um social technologies that um that take a lot of stuff that's private in our world and make it public and transparent so everybody can see it and know it rather than it being like an underground subtext that feeds like envy, competition, and jealousy. So I'll, I'll talk more about that, um, you know, on Thursday. Um, um, yeah, but, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that you know this idea of, of the, the the rising of the of the feminine again, the divine feminine, or, or the you know is, is an aspect of it. And obviously, it's not just you know in women; it's also men contacting their their feminine nature. You know, so so they they can you know we all have both within us. You know, and you know, and if men could go back more into that receptive. Uh, mode, you know, rather than always having to be the ones pushing, you know, in, in, you know, into oblivion, you know, that that's part of the shift, also, you know. And you said that's Thursday at five forty-five. Yeah, at Red Lightning. Yeah. Thanks. Um, okay, cool. I think that that is um, stop time. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I'll ho- I'll hover around outside to so come so come say hi and talk to me and I have like a little propaganda of various sorts I can give to you if you want propaganda, you know. Thank you so much. You're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So I think that it's probably safe to say that at least by last August uh, at Burning Man. Daniel Pinchbeck didn't seem to uh, be fearing any kind of a mass calamity to descend upon our beautiful little planet today. And to be fair to Daniel, uh, who I know has been given some grief on occasion about his views of 2012, well, I suggest that you go way back to my podcast number 57 and uh, listen to the talk that he gave at an oracle gathering in Seattle that night uh, at the end of October in 2006. And uh, if you do, I think you're going to see that even though he had a book uh, just published then with the evocative title of 2012, well, nonetheless, he, he wasn't talking about an apocalypse uh, such as the one that the corporate media has uh, hyped about today's date. And uh, if you want to know uh, what my views uh, about today were back in 2006, well, I gave the talk just preceding Daniel's at the same event. And the title of my talk was The Other Side of 2012, where uh, in it I suggested that rather than worry about the world coming to an end today, instead uh, our time would be better spent working on how we're going to hit the ground running on the 1st of January in 2013. And uh, my podcast of that talk is number 56, with uh, Daniel's, as I said, being 57. And uh, I posted both of those in late November of 2006. Now, before I go, I want to once again mention Dennis McKenna's new book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And I want to tell you about Dennis's recent appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience last Sunday night. And uh, I'll link to that in the podcast notes as well. Now, I've just finished reading Dennis's book myself, and uh, based on a recommendation he had in it, I reread uh, for the third time. True Hallucinations by his brother Terrence, uh, and I just finished that yesterday. So I've been kind of steeped in McKenna lore this past week or so, and uh, yet even with all of the other McKenna input, I still found Joe's uh, wide-ranging interview with Dennis to be exceptionally interesting and on several fronts, not the least of which is that, well, it gave Dennis a chance to shine in what I would call a non-academic discourse. As you know, uh, unlike Terence, uh, Dennis is actually a real scientist, and I have to admit to not always being able to follow his technical presentations as closely as I would like to. But in this interview with Joe Rogan, he really shined, and some of his thoughts were, I think, every bit as insightful and challenging as his brothers once were. Uh, here's just one short example. Well, that, that's the cynical point. Of yeah, view. that's the cynical point of view. But to that, I would reply that. You know, 
what we call ordinary reality, ordinary consciousness, uh, even consensus reality, is essentially a hallucination. I mean, right, the reason drugs work is because we're made of drugs, you know, and whether or not we're on drugs or not, our brains are creating, you know, this reality, which, which we know does not resemble the real world, whatever that is. I mean, the instruments of our physics and so on tell us that the world is a quantum world that's full of vibration. That it doesn't look anything like this. And that atoms you know? are so essentially we are, a lot of what our brain does is synthesize a, a hallucination, essentially create a model of the world that we proceed to live in. You know, I mean, the world that we, you and I share and everyone share, this is a model of the world. This is a, a model reality, not the real reality. The real reality is completely unknowable and will always remain so. So for people to say, well, you've just, yeah, you've disturbed your brain chemistry in a novel way and you've, you've tuned into a different channel, essentially, but you're still working with a model, whether it's a model of the world experienced through the lens of a drug or whether it's experienced through the lens of you know sober conscious perception it's still a biochemical artifact in a sense our brains create this we live inside of it you know and uh, that's so so that's what i would say to those people that it's not that you know, there is some kind of objective reality which we're immersed in when we're not on drugs. It's more that we're on drugs all the time, you know. Our brain is a organ that happens to churn out drugs, you know, <laughs> which we call neurotransmitters yeah. and hormones, and that's what our brains run on. So all, all you do when you take an external drug is you tweak one or more of those sets of receptors that the neurons are talking to, and, you know, you get a slightly distorted signal from what we, what we have come to accept as ordinary reality. There is no ordinary reality, or we don't know what it is. We, it's, it's forever unknowable in terms of our subjective experience. There's a very does strange... Does that make sense? Yes, it does. The reason drugs work is because we're made of drugs. <laughs> so says the younger McKenna brother. And, of course, uh, he actually has the scientific chops to back that up. But then I guess it doesn't really take a scientist to tell us that, uh, well, we're living in some kind of a strange consensual hallucination. And uh, since that's the case, uh, let's make it a joyous hallucination. Uh, at least that's what I'm trying to do. Now, before I go, I uh, also want to let you know that I'm only going to do one more podcast this year, and I plan on posting it around the 29th or so. Uh, normally, I don't do anything particularly noteworthy around the end of a year, but since it's the end of 2012, and uh, maybe in some ways it's the end of an era, I'm going to uh, dig through my backlog of Terrence McKenna talks and see if I can come up with something fitting, uh, or at least something not widely heard. After that, I'm going to be away from the net for a few weeks. In fact, uh, as you are ringing in the new year, you can think of me on a train somewhere between Los Angeles and Chicago. And that's where I switch trains and uh, then head to Washington, D.C. for a little family reunion. 
As you may know, uh, I've been on a personal protest against airline travel due to the subhuman conditions one must go through uh, just to get into one of those disease-filled uh, tubes that shoot through the sky and leave a terrible carbon footprint in their wake. Well, uh, as a result, I've not seen my children and three other grandchildren for several years. But this is a perfect opportunity for me on uh, several fronts. First, I'm going to get to see this continent from end to end once again, but without the hassle of driving this time. And also, it'll give me uh, three days each way to uh, spend alone, away from the net and the phone, and uh, where I plan on doing some serious work on my next book. And also, there's the element of a sentimental journey involved, uh, as my grandfather Charles was a conductor on the Union Pacific Railroad many years ago. And uh, so I'm going to be able to give some thought to the sacrifices he and my other ancestors made so that I can live this wonderful life that's now underway. So, until next time, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.